Good morning. I'm thankful to be back with you this morning. Missed uh, missed being with you last month. Appreciate y'all uh, for giving me that absence. Uh, and uh, I actually told y'all I was going to be uh, traveling that weekend in Philadelphia. And then with the fifth weekend, or actually the the last uh, day of the month being on a Sunday, I, I had my weekends wrong, so I was not in Philadelphia when I was supposed to be here. I ended up being in Tyler that weekend because I skipped Tyler to be in Philadelphia. So just to clear that up, uh, I had my weekends messed up, but I still appreciate y'all allowing me to, to be absent. It's good to be back with you. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the concept and the subject of worship. Um, we talk a lot about meeting together to worship. That word worship is something we we talk about on occasion, and it's mentioned multiple times in the scripture, but I'm not entirely sure that we always understand what we're saying when we say that we come together to worship or that we worship. Uh, so I want to look at what the scripture says about the concept of worship, what worship is and what it means and maybe the best way to begin that is to start with the word itself. You know, the English word worship, the etymology of that is a combination of worthy and ship. And really where it comes from, much like fellowship comes from the idea of fellows working together on a ship, the idea of worship is someone who is worthy to captain a ship. One's worthy of honor, of, of a position of authority. That English word was used as the, the representation or the translation of the biblical words worship, which in the Old Testament is the, the Hebrew shakah, which means to bow down or to do obeisance, to, to bow down before someone greater than yourself, which really probably had its origin in the, in the idea of, of battle and when one submits to their conqueror, whether in a, in a fight or whether in war, they bow down. They say, I'm not going to fight anymore, you're greater than I am. So it's this idea of submission or obedience, obeisance. The Greek word uh, proskaneo is to prostrate oneself. Again, to bow down, to bow down before one, to acknowledge I don't have any standing before you. You're greater than I am. So the idea of worship as we understand it is when we make a public display of our humility before one that's greater than we are. So that's helpful for me at least in considering the idea of worship because sometimes when I'm thinking about worship, I think about coming together in an assembly in the church and what we do, which is more of a religious exercise we get in the habit of worshiping weekly. We come to church on Sunday morning. We go through the motions. We pray. We sing. We pray again. We hear preaching of the word and we think, well, this is worship. Well, it might be or it might not be because worship really comes to the heart of the matter and the attitude of the one giving the service because worship is not about what we're doing as much as what we're thinking and what we're thinking specifically of the one we're worshiping, what we're thinking about God. And we can see that exemplified in the scripture where there's always public acts of worship commanded from the very beginning. But even in that first recorded service of worship, there's a problem because Cain and Abel were called to the day to give praise to God, to worship God through sacrifice and Cain came bringing of the fruit of the ground, doing the things, going through the motions, 
But the word of God says to Cain and to his sacrifice, God had no respect. God didn't care about Cain's actions. Why? Because Cain's heart was not one of worship to God. Cain wasn't bowing before God, recognizing his glory, his greatness. And we understand that Cain was not one who God had given that heart of praise, of thanksgiving, that ability to comprehend the greatness of God. Abel, on the other hand, came presenting a sacrifice. And Abel, God had respect toward. And God had respect toward Abel's sacrifice. So though they both were going through the motions, to put it in our experience, they both were sitting in the pew. They both were coming before the Lord. They were coming with a completely different heart, a completely different mindset, a completely different purpose. One was worshiping, the other was not. And we should think about that as we consider our acts of obedience and service and professed worship before God. This idea is presented in the New Testament as well as the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church. He writes to the Colossians and he tells them of the importance of true worship. Or rather the importance of not setting uh, up on pedestals these ideas of keeping of days and of ceremonies and, and sacrifice. As he writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2. He says, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Why are you so interested in men's ideas, men's commandments, men's doctrines? You're worried about keeping certain dates, certain holy days. You're worried about what you're eating and what you're tasting, what you're touching. You're worried about all these ideas, these ordinances of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship? In will worship. And humility and neglecting of the body. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. These things seem good because they're, they're sacrifice of yourself. They're giving up things that are pleasing to you. It seems like you're doing acts of service. But there's an interesting difference. This word worship here that's translated will worship is not the same as worship to prostrate oneself because it's not directed at God. Instead, it's a man-centered idea. It's an idea that says, if I do these things, I'm going to get something for it. I'm sacrificing now to receive later. It's a, it's a selfish sort of worship. And he calls it will worship. It's a totally different Greek word, totally different meaning. It seems wise, but he says, don't do these things. Why? Because if you're dead with Christ, then you don't owe anything to these ideas of men, these rudiments of the world. And the previous verse really sets that apart, where he gets to that from. He says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God, not holding the head. It doesn't matter what we do or what we profess to believe or what name we put on our building or what name we attach to our life. We can call ourselves Christians every day, all day long. But if we're not holding Christ 
as the head, looking to Christ every day, every moment. If we're not judging our every thought and our every act by the standard that Jesus Christ has established and bowing down before him, acknowledging that we are nothing and he is everything, then we're not worshiping. And we're not really what that name implies. We're not really the church of Christ. So this is established in the scripture throughout. And it's something that was struggled with by the saints in Old Testament times. Because they were constantly attempting to establish themselves as the people of God. But they were trying to do it by men's ideas and men's standards. Rather than through obedience to the word that God had given And what did that reveal about them? It revealed that they did not see him as supreme. They didn't see God as the most important. They were more concerned about what the nations around them might think or more concerned about their own experience and what they themselves were going to get out of it. In the 86th Psalm, the Lord speaks through his servant David. By inspiration, David writes and David says this, He says in verse 8, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. This is the heart of worship. He's saying, God, there's no one like you. He's considering who God is. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify Thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Thou art God alone. What a testimony that is. And that should be our testimony. When we think about God, when we think about Jesus Christ, you alone are God. Well, that's easy for us to say. The Jews had that down. They had it memorized. The Lord our God is one God, spoken by his servant Moses. They said that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But what did they do? They worshipped the law. They worshipped the law that was given by God rather than worshipping God himself. They worshipped themselves as the people of God. And they established themselves and their heritage above the God who they professed to worship. And they made gods of everything but the one who gave all things. So David has a right heart, a heart of worship. What does he say? Among the gods, the little g gods, among anything that people might worship, there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Worship begins with considering who it is that we're worshiping and even comparing him to anything else that might claim our praise and our attention. Because the fact is we all struggle with competing allegiances and competing priorities. We all have things that we want, that we desire. And then there's what God says. And there's always this tension because there's what I want and there's what God commands. And most of the time, if I'm honest, I struggle with prioritizing God's will above my own will. Because I want what I want, and I know what I want. But God's word tells me what God commands. And the first thing we need to do as we consider this is realize there's a huge difference between my wants and God's commands. Because you see, God doesn't want anything. God doesn't desire anything. 
God isn't asking for anything. Why? Because he's God. That's the essential difference. Men desire, men plan, men ask, men want. God commands. God decrees. God declares. And that should in itself give priority to anything God says. If his word commands, then I ought to obey. And the moment I begin to question or sense that tension and say, well, there's there's a disconnect between God's command and my desire, and I need to choose. What am I doing? I'm lowering God from his throne. I'm bringing him down from that place of worship. And I'm elevating something else to that level, and I'm no longer a worshiper. And that presents a huge and tremendous problem. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that God gave as he codified his law for his people. It began where worship begins. It began with the very person of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, wait, I thought he was the only God. What does he mean? You should not have any other gods before me. Well, God is God. God is Elohim. God is Jehovah. God is the one whose name is the Lord. But gods, gods are anything that we worship. Gods are anything that we bow down before. And there's a lot of gods in this world. There's a lot of gods we could call them idols. A lot of things that would claim our attention and claim our praise. Some of us serve mammon, money, wealth. And all the things it can give us. All the things it can purchase. Some of us serve power. The ability to command others. Which is something that just feeds our pride because that gives us a sense of what it must be to be God, right? We're like Satan in the beginning speaking to Eve. If you partake of this fruit, you'll be like gods. You'll have knowledge and that knowledge will give you power. Some of us pursue power. Some of us pursue wealth. Some of us pursue education, knowledge. We want to know things, even things that will harm us. Well, that's part of that original sin too. What was the, what was the story? Look, God's given you all things, but God's told you you can't partake of this one fruit. But if you eat of this fruit, you'll know more than you know now. All knowledge is not good. There are things we don't need to know and to understand. And on some level, the pursuit of knowledge above all else is itself worshiping something other than God. So the first command the Lord gave by his servant Moses, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nothing should get between you and me, God says. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself. That literally means worship. It's the same word that's translated worship. It could be translated here, thou shalt not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The heart of worship here is found in this expression. 
showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. You see, it's not enough to simply know God as a concept or even to know God as a person, as your creator. It's not enough to simply know that God is a God of power. To worship, you have to cross this line. You have to love him. And how do you love him? By knowing him. By understanding who he is. You see, these Jews who failed to worship him, they failed to worship him though they knew him intellectually because they did not love him. Because they didn't understand the fullness of his love. To them, God was a God of power and God was a God of choice and God was a God of commands and laws, but they never understood the weightier matter of who God was. Jesus upbraids them for that. Jesus says you give great attention to make sure you keep every letter of the law. You pay tithes of every spice in your cabinet. And yet you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. And what were those? Justice? Mercy? They didn't see God as a God of mercy. They didn't see God as a God who was right. Whose laws were right and honorable and upright. They saw God as some austere master that they had to serve and for service to whom they felt something was owed them. But they didn't love him. And God says, I show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And then the next commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Just think of it this way. You call yourself a servant of God. You've taken upon yourself the name of God. If you call yourself a Christian, if I call myself a Christian, I've taken Jesus' name upon me. That's not an empty statement. Don't take that name in vain, but rather... Lay hold upon the name of God as a name to be honored and exalted and exalt his name in your life and in your service. That's the command that's given. The love of God is manifest in the scripture as writers by inspiration utter what we refer to as doxologies or just expressions of praise and they come about as their, as their writing and as their, uh, as they're describing the works of God or the commands of God or the implications of God's commands in the lives of his people, and they just burst out in expressions of praise, expressions of praise to God. We find them in places like 1 Timothy chapter 1 as The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And then he pauses for a moment. And he says, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't contain himself. Why? He's thinking about the mercy of God in his life, the work of God in his life, the purpose of God in his life. 
And rather than thinking about how great he is and saying, I am an apostle, I have done this, I have done that, which on occasion Paul does for a teaching moment say to the Corinthians, I was called of God and I was more, more abundant in my labors than all the apostles know here. As he's reflecting on God's work in his life, he breaks out in praise and says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, God is great. God is glorious. He's worshiping God because of who he is. Why? Because he's known him. Another expression of the Apostle Paul as he's writing by inspiration, he breaks out into praise in the Roman letter in Romans uh, chapter 11. He's talking about God's plans and God's works for Israel and for his church. And as he's doing this, he closes the 11th chapter in this way. After saying, God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That has nothing really directly to do with the message he's presenting, right? But it does. Because he says this work that God is working with the branches he's cut off and the branches he's grafted in and the branches that will be grafted in again. This work God is working among his people. It shows how glorious God is. Oh, the depth of the riches of the glory of God. God is glorious. God is mighty. And Paul is brought to a place of praise. And that's where worship begins. So when we reflect upon God's work in our life and the knowledge he's given us, when we think about his word, when we think about the gospel and the change, the difference the gospel made in our lives, we ought to be brought to a place of praise, of thanksgiving, of worship, where we pause for a moment, we get out of the the theological mess of trying to figure it all out, and we simply say, wow. God is glorious. God is powerful. God is mighty. God is worthy of praise. And then we worship him. And what does worship do? Well, it's a continuous cycle. Worship causes us to look to his word, to want to know more about him so that we can worship him more effectively. And you know, when we read through the book of Psalms, we see David and the other authors worshiping God They're psalms of praise to God. Wherever they start, they always finish by saying God is glorious. God is mighty. God is wonderful. And God is going to do according to his pleasure. And for us as worshipers, whatever situations we may encounter, whatever state we may be in, our worship should bring us back to God. We may start out praying to God and seeking his delivering mercy. We may start out with requests and we may start out with complaints. We may start out like Paul when he prays to God three times and says, allow this thorn to depart from my flesh. But in the end, like David and so many of his psalms of ascent, he's in these psalms of degrees 
building up to a point where he starts out with uttering his complaints. And by the end of the psalm, he's giving thanks to God, even for his current trials. And that's where we'll find ourselves if our attention is focused on God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You should worship none other. We need to, as the hymn writer says, seek God first and only and pray that every dear idol that we have known will be ripped down off of its throne. That we can worship only Him. Because the reality is, if we worship anything else, if we set anything else between us and God, then we're not worshiping God at all. We may be sitting in the pew. We may be doing all of the things. But like Israel of old, those things that we do, God may never even acknowledge. He may never even see. Why? Because our hearts before him are not pure. So how do we do that? We look at who he is. We seek his face. We seek him alone. And in seeking him, we find. And what we find is infinitely more glorious than we ever could have imagined. Infinitely more glorious than that which we began to seek after. The Apostle Paul experienced that in his life. He says, according to the law, I was perfect. I was upright. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was everything I should have been. But in that state... The things that were gained to him in that state, he said, I count but loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Why? Because knowing Christ is better than any of that ever was. We need to understand that worship is not the same as religion. Our religious practices may tend toward worship. They may be a component of our worship. But worship begins with knowing God and knowing self and knowing That God is infinitely more glorious than self. And any of our desires, any of our thoughts, any of our ideas must be subdued. They must be subjugated to the person of Jesus Christ, to the commands of his word, so that we can worship only him. Thank you for your attention this morning. I pray the Lord's blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving to each of your people a heart of true worship. Father, we thank you for your work through the regenerating power of your spirit, giving us a heart to seek after you, a mind to hear and to receive your word, a desire, Father, to to learn of you and to praise you. And Father, we ask that you would be with each one of us, be with this congregation, and Father, make us as your people, as your church, a, a people who would look to you, who would praise your name and extol you before men. And Father, that we would tear down every idol that would rise up to draw our attention away and cause us to seek after will worship and to please our flesh. Father, allow us to to worship you and you alone and in you to find infinite glory and power and praise. And Father, we give you thanks. We ask that you continue with us in the service this morning and that you would be with and bless us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.